Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Throughout August, we're plundering our archives to bring you some of the best interviews from Series 1 of the podcast. This week, I'm talking to GP Dr Amy Small about living with long COVID in an interview that was recorded in November 2021. Amy caught COVID right at the start of the pandemic in March 2020 and went on to develop long COVID. In this conversation, she explains how long COVID has affected her life, her family and her job as a GP and what she thinks needs to be done to improve services and support for other people affected by the condition. I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr Amy Small, who is a locum GP in Lothian in Scotland. Amy was a partner for 10 years in East Lothian until she became ill with long COVID last year. Alongside her locum work, she is also a consultant for health charity Chest Heart Stroke Scotland, which is providing advice for patients suffering from long COVID and has been advising the Scottish Government on support for patients with long COVID in Scotland. She now advocates for better services for patients affected by long COVID and is also aiming to raise awareness among other GPs about the impact the illness has. Thanks so much for joining me today, Amy. Thanks for having me. So could you start by telling us a bit about when you first caught COVID and what the initial illness was like? Yeah, so I got ill on April 11th, 2020. And in the beginning, I wasn't sure it was COVID because the first few hours I just had a headache and I had a slight fever, but it wasn't the magic 37.8 that everyone talked about. And um, just kind of went about my daily business, but, but just felt odd, actually. And it was the next day that I woke up and I had a proper fever. And I had then found out that a colleague that I'd been in touch with a few days earlier, I'd been in contact with a few days earlier, had then tested positive for COVID. And um, my husband got ill that day. And then my children each subsequent day after that. And then we got the cough around day six. Um, which which was later than I thought it was going to be. It was a more insidious onset of an illness rather than the flu that kind of comes and hits you out of the blue and you feel horrendous from day one. It kind of crept up on us, um, which I wasn't quite expecting. I mean, it typical sort of aches and pains all over my body. Um, felt really breathless. That was the thing that was so different from flu or anything else I'd had before. Just felt really, really breathless. Um, and I had tinnitus and all sorts of other strange symptoms, but predominantly for me, the issue was fever. And that was a fever that just didn't go away. Um, And it kind of became obvious to me after a month of fever that this was something a little bit different from from what I'd ever experienced before. And I really wasn't sure what was going on. And it began to dawn on me that that this was something different. Yeah. So when did you start to realise that something was wrong and you weren't getting better in the timeframe? Was it sort of after that month and you were still feeling rotten and... So it was about it was about three weeks in where I had a day of being really, really breathless. My rest rate was about 30. Normally it should have been sort of around 12 to 16. And all day I just felt horrendous. And, and, I, and I kind of figured at that point I'd been hearing about blood clots and stuff and I started to panic. And so I called 111 who got me seen up at the hospital and I had some tests done and they said, no, there are no clots. But, you know, we are seeing a few people like you just go home and rest. That was three weeks in and four weeks in. I was just losing my head because I hadn't left the house other than for a medical appointment um, in four weeks. So I emailed a colleague and just said, if I go out, am I going to be typhoid Mary or and infect everyone? Or, you know, can I can I am I still infectious? And And they said, oh, you're not infectious, but we need to see you because it's not normal to still have a fever after a month every single day It was above 38. So it was at that point, infectious diseases asked me to get my GP to refer me. 
which they did. And I was seen probably about six weeks into the illness. And they did all sorts of weird and wonderful blood tests and blood cultures. And they repeated my swabs, which we knew would be negative at that point because it was so far down the line. Um, and they just said, we're not really sure what's going on. We're hearing about people like you. Um, we'll call you in three months and see how you are. And I was kind of just left to get on with it really at that point. And I think my brain wasn't really working that well. So I just accepted it and, and went home and, and got on with it. Um, but it was tough because having two little children and not being able to get anyone to help you and both my husband and I have long COVID, you know, we were literally just like existing. Um, and it was really then I realized that this this wasn't right, you know, that there was something much bigger than than me that was that was going on. So what were the ongoing symptoms you were experiencing and how were they affecting your day to day life? I guess one of the main things was the fever and that just made you generally feel rubbish. Um, and then yeah. um, it was really tachycardic. So I began to notice that as I was just standing up to brush my teeth with an electric toothbrush, I wasn't even having to work that hard. My heart rate, I looked down at my watch because I thought, oh, I feel a bit breathless doing this. And, and I've got one of these uh, Garmin watches and it, it said that my heart rate was 110 brushing my teeth. And I was like, I'd never paid a huge amount of attention to my pulse in the past. I knew that my resting heart rate was in the high 50s because I was fit and active and that was normal for me. But I thought, this is odd. And I couldn't walk up the stairs without stopping um, because I was just so breathless and aching all over head to toe myalgia. And so those were the big things. For me headache was a really big feature. Um, and that's something a lot of people with long COVID complain about is headache. And that was just there every day, sometimes migraine and sometimes just a background headache. There's tinnitus and vertigo. Um, so quite often very dizzy. Um, and then it was weird, like four months down the line, I lost my sense of smell. That just happened a lot later, but only luckily for me for a month or so. I know for others, I've had it much longer. And then I had a deafness in one ear for several weeks, just really couldn't hear well out of that ear at all. So it was really weird because it would kind of come in waves and definitely something sort of neurological going on. And then I realized every time I kind of pushed myself, my fever would go up. So if I walked my kid to nursery, my temperature then that afternoon would be 39. And to me, that was just bizarre. I'd never experienced that. And I think the other big thing was brain fog. So my head just didn't work properly. I just felt like I was in a haze. I would often lose my words. And then things like if I would make a recipe for something, I would always leave out at least one ingredient. And that was never some, that wasn't me. Um, and then if I pushed myself too far, my speech would start to slur. I actually physically couldn't articulate. And that was really disconcerting. So when did you sort of work out that you had long COVID? How did you come across the term long COVID and work out that's what you were suffering from? So it was actually on social media. Um, Paul Garner is a doctor who's got long COVID who wrote an article quite early on in the BMJ about his symptoms. And I remember reading it and showing it to my husband and going, this, this is us. This is what we've got. Um, and it was hugely reassuring to know that we weren't the only ones. And it was on that around that time that that the term long COVID was born on Twitter. Um, and so I had, I'd been following people, various people on Twitter, seeing what was going on there. Uh, then I think it must have been about June time that a Doctors with Long COVID group popped up on Facebook. Um, and that was just such a relief for me to find lots of other colleagues who were going through the same thing and able to discuss it with people and, and, and get that peer support because that's something that, that was very lonely in those early days, not really knowing what was happening. 
So how did you work out what worked for you to get better? Because it seems to me that lots of different things work for lots of different people. And like you say, it depends on what symptoms you've got. I mean, were you just really laid up for a really long time or did you start to get progressively better? I, I, I was a typical type A personality that kept pushing through and was actually making myself so much worse without realising it. And it was about June time that I was itching to get back to work. I guess my baseline had got a little bit better. You know, I wasn't as feverish and I wasn't as tired. I was still having to nap um, at least once or twice a day, but I was much better than I wasn't in bed the entire day. So it was at that point that I'd contacted Occupational Health and said, I really would like to get back to work. But they wouldn't speak to me because I still had fever. So for them, that was a complete red line because in terms of infection control, they, they couldn't they couldn't fathom that, that that I wasn't a danger to others. They just said, don't do it. But I spoke to my colleagues and I was like, listen, guys, I'm just I want to do something. I'm, I'm desperate to get back. Maybe maybe it was all in my head. Maybe I could just, you know, make it better. So I, I went and did half a day at work. So the first day I did half a day of paperwork. The next day I did half a day of just normal surgery. And that left me bedbound for 10 days. Um, I have never experienced anything like it before. I literally couldn't chew cereal because my jaw hurt so much. It was so fatigued. I could hardly speak. I could, I could hardly lift my arm to drink water. And it was at that point that I thought, oh, God, you know, this is huge. And I finally understood that cognitive fatigue had such a huge physical impact. And that's something I'd never really got my head around before with patients. And it was at that point that I contacted a friend of a friend who had ME and said, I don't want to get ME and I'm really worried this is where I'm going. What can I do to get better? And she had really helpfully talked to me about pacing. She had suggested I'd see a nutritionist. She'd also recommended osteopathy for this weird perin technique thing, a lymphatic drainage. Um, and I just thought, right, I'm just going to throw whatever I can at this to make it better. And so I think a big thing for me was the nutritional support. That was really, really helpful. I saw this amazing nutritionist who got me to give up sugar. And I had no idea how A, inflammatory sugar was so in terms of fever and all that stuff. Actually, the fatigue, not having the peaks and troughs of, you know, sugar hits, caffeine hits, you know, cutting out caffeine, cutting out alcohol, everything to just let my body just recover. And that was a, a turning point in terms of realizing that, that I needed to look after myself and, and eat better. And, and then it was actually a, a patient with ME on Twitter who'd recommended a really good pacing book for people with ME. It was, it was really that, that, that massive relapse that spurred me into the kind of more self-help stuff that I did. Um, so I just want to come back to what you said about pacing. Do most GPs understand what pacing is? I don't think so. I mean, I've not heard about maybe they're better GPs than I am, but I certainly didn't. I just thought <laughs> pacing meant do it more slowly. Um, and I wasn't it wasn't till I'd 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 got this book um, on pacing that I really understood. And, and, and I always use this cooking analogy. And, and I, I learned that from from my own experience. And I sort of went off to the kitchen and I learned that I had to sit, not stand to peel my carrots and then go back to the living room and rest. I would then go back a bit later and sit to chop the carrots and then go back and rest. And then I could go back and cook the bloody carrots and learn that, you know, actually pacing is, is, is that it's breaking your day down into chunks, planning your day. So even if, and I think it sounds very strange when you're ill because you're like, well, what have I got to plan? I'm ill, you know, what, what am I going to prioritize? I'm ill, you know, and actually it was like, okay, well, if I'm going to have a shower 
and know that I've got to be out and maybe have a phone call with a friend, I can't do those three things in a row. I've got to plan in rest breaks between that. So, and for those who are super ill, well, maybe I will brush my teeth and then go back and rest and later on go and do the mouthwash. You know, it's, it's about just basically breaking everything down and planning rest breaks around it. And once you can do that and you understand that and learn that, it's really, really hard though, because it just goes against every grain of my personality that, you know, exists. But but once you learn that, you then learn, I think, to have a much better quality of life. Even if it's quite restricted, you then just don't feel ill all the time because the more you push through, you're just poisoning yourself effectively. Um, and so for me, that was that was quite revolutionary. And I think that's where GPs need to need to learn more about what pacing is if they don't know. I mean, one of the things you you have spoken about before is obviously there did come a point where you did actually lose your job as a GP partner. I mean, are you okay to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think for me that, and the reason I talk about it is because. Well, for several reasons. One of the reasons I think it's important that we understand how much long COVID impacts us beyond the illness, you know, that the massive ramifications and, you know, I'm lucky as long as I'm well enough to work, I will always be in work, you know, we're hemorrhaging GPs. So that, that for, for me, that's not an issue. Um, but, you know, you think about Joe Bloggs, who's, who's been a labourer for 25 years and that's all they've ever known and their work is very physical and they lose their job. They're completely scuppered. And, and we know that our benefit system isn't fit for purpose. We know that people won't qualify for PIP and other things because it's an invisible illness that waxes and wanes and that system is deeply flawed. So for one reason, you know, I said, if a GP can lose their job, then actually, you know, this is, this is huge. And when we look at the statistics, the number of people with long COVID, you know, we think 10 to 14% of people that got COVID develop long COVID. This is a societal issue that we need to look at. So that's one reason why I talk about it. The other reason I talk about it is that that's also what made me discover an underlying problem with long COVID that I didn't know much about. And so it was at my last meeting with my partners that I I, I was pretty sure I was going to lose my job. And I was really anxious before the meeting, understandably. So I thought, well, I had some out of date beta blocker from when my father was dying. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to take that because anything can help right now to get through this, this horrible meeting. And I noticed that I felt less breathless generally. Um, and that day I walked up the stairs without stopping. And it was just bizarre. I, I, it was like a sort of light bulb moment. And I've been reading about POTS, so this postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. And I've been reading about links to that and long COVID and how people were getting diagnosed with this. And I had been tachycardic throughout and I had noticed that if I did push myself and my my heart rate went higher, that I was then more unwell with higher fever and more breathless. So I phoned my GP after the meeting and said, look, I really wonder if I've got POTS and and, um, off the back of this self-management, whatever diagnosis, could I try a, a different longer acting beta blocker? And she said, absolutely. And for me, that was a massive turning point because within two weeks, of the actual cutoff date of my job, I started locuming again because I was well enough. So, you know, that that was huge. And, and I think that's where I realised that actually we need to know more about these underlying associated illnesses that people with ME and other people have been talking about for a long time, but GPs just don't know much about. We're not taught about it at medical school. We're not, it's not on the GP curriculum, you know. So um, for me, that was a really big turning point. And that's also why I talk about that whole period, because that was a discovery and what got me better. 
how was it that you came to lose your job as a partner? So we had a six-month cut-off clause in our partnership agreement um, that stated um, if you were unable to fulfil your partnership duties over a six-month period, the others could vote unanimously to to expel you from the practice. I guess I was just naive to think that even though we did all get on really well, we were a very close team, we worked really well together, we socialised outside of work. You know, when your back's up against the wall and you're exhausted and you're you, they've all been working through the pandemic, that, you know... Actually, for them, they thought I was going to get ME and I was going to be a disabled partner. And they, they at that point, couldn't take that risk. Um, and it was just sad because I think, you know, I felt very betrayed. And I think I also just felt that it was very short-sighted. Um, and history will show that I got better quite quickly and, and that was fine. But I think the big issue was that I'd had a big occupational health review that showed a very slow phased return um, that could have taken up to five months. And that just made it very difficult. So um, I wasn't I wasn't well enough at the six month point to go back. So some of the things you talked about there and the treatments and things that have worked for you, some of that obviously was medication. Um, And I think there's a lot of GPs that don't really understand that there are some medications that can be given to people with long COVID to help some of the symptoms. What do you think it's important for GPs to know about long COVID? So I think it is about reading between the lines and not getting too bamboozled with all the symptoms and trying to focus on systems in a way that we always have. So trying to remember that, you know, breathlessness isn't always respiratory. You know, we we have patients who come and see us who are breathless. So we think, okay, well, I'll do a chest X-ray and um, some of them get blood clots ruled out and other things like that. And then they think, okay, there's no lung problems. Off you go. But actually in my case, the, the, the breathlessness was related to POTS, which some would say is neurological, some would say it's cardiological, but, you know, it's trying to remember there are other causes. So it's trying to keep an open mind, trying to be curious about the symptoms that your patient has. So I would say um, go away and learn about POTS, learn about MCAS, muscle activation syndrome, which is something I'd never heard of before, but it's where people are having strange reactions as a consequence of COVID. They're intolerant to um foods they've got lots of gastro problems they're having weird um, reactions skin rashes um, and finding that actually antihistamines can be very helpful and low histamine diets can be very helpful so it's trying to not lump us into that oh too difficult don't go there bracket but actually trying to be curious and trying to read around it but it's difficult because there aren't any very clear evidence-based guidelines at the moment so it's about trying to get that information out which is why I've been doing a lot of sort of talking and advocating because actually you know we need to go and seek out this information and and we need to hopefully eventually come up with some decent educational material for doctors but I understand at the moment it's difficult to publicize that because of the lack of clear evidence. Going forwards, how much do you think long COVID should be a condition that would be managed by GPs? And how much do you think it should be something that's managed by a sort of bigger specialist team? Ultimately, I think it will be a condition that's managed by GPs in the long run. Once we've got more support out there and information for GPs to have the tools to handle it. So I think at the moment, yes, we are reliant on specialists because we don't have the advice, the 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 evidence base, the the guidance there. Um, so yeah, I can see in maybe five, six years time, GPs will will have more of a more of an idea once we've got that there. But I think ultimately we're always going to have to have access to physio, OT, psychology support, which is why I'm I'm very keen to base models on, for example, the Hertfordshire model run by Dr. Master 
where it's a GP-led service embedded in a hospital setting with access to a multidisciplinary team. So she's brilliant because she's got the GP holistic um, approach, but has at her fingertips access to CT scans if she needs it, MRI scans if she needs it, advice from specialists who've seen the sort of more complex patients. Um, And so really, that would be the model that I'm trying to push and trying to get into Scotland, because I think ultimately, yes, it's a GP that has probably the best insight into that holistic approach. But it's sort of GP plus, if you like, with the access to the other investigations. Um, And unfortunately, at the moment, GPs just don't know about it, enough about it. And and everyone's just treading water and drowning in day to day work anyway to then have the, the space, then go away and learn more about something else that's new. It's very difficult. What would you say to GPs if they've got patients who come in with long COVID? um, What do you think the most important thing GPs should bear in mind? I think listen to your patients, let them tell their story. You know, I think particularly for those of us that went through this in the first wave, we did this very much alone, you know, and I think we were told to stay at home and we did. A lot of people, you know, suffered at home and we know now that those people would have been treated in hospital. I think it really is about listening to their story. There's a lot of physical issues that I think we need to sort of underpin. I think we need to listen listen to the emotional impact that it's had on people's lives. I think this is where we just have to keep curious, have to keep learning, have to keep reading, communicating, asking questions with our from colleagues, you know, trying to learn from each other about what we're seeing. But above all, just have that empathy there. You come across quite a lot of other doctors and nurses or health professionals who've been really affected by long COVID. Do you think it is becoming a big sort of occupational health issue for the NHS potentially? My understanding from ONS statistics is that there are 122,000 health and social care workers who've had time off sick due to long COVID. So, you know, that number screens big. On the other side, um, in my work with the BMA, so I'm a very active BMA member, I sit on various committees, I've been trying to help uh, doctors who are affected get support from the BMA. And the problem the BMA are facing is that actually the numbers are very low. So there are several GPs I'm aware of who've lost their partnerships. There are salary doctors who are now looking at losing their jobs. There are salary doctors in hospitals who are looking at losing their jobs or you know having real issues. There are certain constraints within the NHS that are frustrating in terms of phased return to work. It's a standard four-week phased return or you lose pay. Now, I would love to be able to square that circle, to be able to get trusts to, to look at, you know, prolonged phase returns where people are paid because this is the big issue is the income factors. It's actually they're not in a doctor's interest to do a phase return over a four-week period because they may well then get better pay for a longer time if they're off sick completely. But then you get to that rub point of, well, I need to get back to work and I want to get back to work, but I can't do it in four weeks. And then what do you do? So charities like the Cameron Fund, which support GPs, um, have seen a rise in people contacting them. I certainly did contact them um, because at the point when I lost my job, my husband's salary was about to go to half um, and my roof was leaking and we were in the the process of remortgaging. And it was just a a, a, a bombshell that hit our family. And I just didn't know what we were going to do. You know, are we going to have to sell our house? What are we going to do? And they provided amazing financial um, advice for me. I actually didn't need their help in the end because I managed to start working. But so the charities are certainly getting more contacted. 
Um, and I certainly think, you know, amongst the bigger healthcare professionals, I suspect, you know, amongst nurses, physios, et cetera, this is, you know, um, an on, uh, going to be a bigger ongoing issue. But until we can get that phase return thing squared, it's going to be very difficult to get people back into the workplace in a way that they are well enough to do their job properly and not perpetuate their illness um, going forward by pushing through. So that, that's a bigger piece of, of work that, that people look at. Your, your health now, are you kind of, are you better now, do you think, or, or is long COVID, is that something you've just got to live with for a really long time, do you think? If you'd asked me that about six weeks ago, I would have told you I'd recovered. I'd managed to exercise regularly. I was exercising five times a week. I'd taken myself off my medication. I was feeling great. I then had the booster and that caused a big relapse for me. But, you know, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You get the booster or you get COVID, you know, either which way, you know, and, and I think that for me was a real kick in the teeth because it set me right back. I was back to daily fevers. I was really breathless. I was really tachycardic again. Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't work that week and I lost income. And, and if that was a really, that was really hard. And then it made me realize, yeah, this, this isn't something that's just going to go away and it is, it is still there. So um, I'm back on my medication. I just started exercising again this week a bit. And I'm just going to have to take it slowly and and, and pace um, back to to health. But um, I suspect it will be something that will be around probably for. Uh, I, can, I can probably get my head around a couple of years. I don't know that I can get my head around much more than that. And I think that's where we have to look to the ME community. You know, these poor people who they call themselves the missing millions, and they are. You know, they've just been left neglected. Um, put in that ME box and off you go. And I think, you know, I look at them and I think, gosh, we have so much to learn from them and so much, you know, strength we can gain from what they've experienced. And actually, you know, this this is time to change, you know. And this is what I say in every group, you know, I was saying it with Scottish government repeatedly. If we can get this right for people with long COVID, we can get this right for so many other conditions. You know, that Hertfordshire model, can be applied to many illnesses. It doesn't have to be just long COVID. If we can get the benefit system to recognize invisible waxing and waning illness, you know, actually that's really important. If we can change phase returns in the NHS to accommodate chronic illness, again, you know, it's, it, 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 it's not just about long COVID, it's about chronic disease. And, and I think we, we need to change our attitude to it and we can't just keep ignoring it. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another interview from the archives and we're back with new podcasts from the 9th of September. Don't forget, you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources at gponline.com. 